0: Hello, this is Benjamin Boyce and welcome to my channel. Before I get on with the introduction, I would like to make a public, a couple of public statements. First and foremost, I want to thank everybody who is working right now to support the various different infrastructures that allow us to stay healthy to remain fed and to get our electricity and our internet and all our various utilities big shout out to you folks thank you for going to your jobs getting out of your house and doing the things that we need you to do secondly i would like to ask on behalf of people who are in need right now that those who are out there buying things at these various different shopping centers try to just get what you need and leave something for for other people because there are people who are in need, and if we don't regulate our various different desires, things might end up being a lot worse than they need to be. So enough about current events. Today's guest is Bo Weingard. Bo Weingard is a social scientist who recently got pushed out of academia by a gaggle. I don't even know the collective noun for a bunch of cowardly online trolls that went after his tenure track position and the administration that he was, you know, I I guess was administering his position caved to these trolls and decided not to renew his contract. So he's kind of out on the street now, thanks to the woke scolds and the people who are apparently hell-bent on pushing our culture as close as possible to the intellectual dark age that is always... Right around the corner. Now, several times I've tried to encapsulate exactly what we talk about, but we talk about so much and the various different dynamics in culture right now, the various different difficult or dangerous questions that should be asked that we really need to think about and why can't we ask those things? Why can't we talk about those things? It's a very stimulating conversation. Really proud to have him again, pushed into pixels and shoved out in your general direction. Hope you guys are well. Hope you guys are safe. I hope you guys are clean,
1: calm collected and here is Bo Weingard. so we were talking about the most dangerous idea right yeah or even question yeah or quite well I have a lot of very dangerous questions that I wouldn't ask even to most people Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. but probably the most dangerous idea that I think I've forwarded or at least talked about is that different human cultures are different both because of historical reasons and because of the traits of the people who create them. And so I think it's quite likely, for example, that Northern Europeans create different kinds of cultures from Northeast Asians because they have slightly different traits on average. Now, it's important to know that that's an average. I'm not saying every you know European is more individualistic than every Northeast Asian but in the aggregate there are certain differences and those probably lead to the creation of slightly different cultures and societies.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and by traits do you, are you talking about like the big 5 like openness, industriousness, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? P-
1: possibly those. Yeah, I mean like the the problem with these personality traits the the big 5 that we're talking about is um you know they're they're sort of it's it they're crude measures. It's hard to get at like all of the things that we might be talking about. Um, but yeah, there might be differences there, differences in sort of social sensitivity, uh, differences in propensities toward guilt, uh, toward shame. You know, there's that kind of like guilt shame mm. culture idea. Yeah. Um, differences in intelligence, all all kinds of differences. Um, and I guess the the sort of traditional dogma is that all of those differences are historical and culturally created or historically and culturally created. And, and there are, but it's not a unique idea with me. Nicholas Wade made this case in um, uh, a troublesome inheritance and other people have made it, but I think it's, a I I think it's very plausible and I think it's very interesting. And probably that's the one that I was like the most Worried about forwarding like i I had serious concerns about what it would do to me. <laughs> it turns out that those were probably legitimate concerns <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. what do you why do you think that that reaction is so strong to that particular idea? Is it because of historical abuse? Or because it, it is it deeper than that? If it is it butting against some sort of accepted philosophy or uh, presumptions underlying the current culture
1: and academia? I think both of those things and those things work together. A lot of these topics were sort of verboten after the Nazi atrocities were fully reveal, revealed, right? And people yeah. Because obviously they did have grotesque ideologies about race and like superior races and inferior races. Mm -hmm. And I think there was an understandable backlash in the academy uh, to ideas that sounded anything like that. And so you can see if you're suggesting that, well, yeah, there are different human populations. They do have different traits. Um, You can see how somebody can go from that and just say, oh, are you suggesting that one group's superior to another group or whatever it happens to be? So I think that's a lot of it. But I also do think that there's sort of a – I don't think that there are many political uh, – necessary political implications to this stuff. Um, But – I do think it probably does undermine some progressive ideals, right? Because I think there's this pro- the progressive idea is that it's not that humans are blank slates. I think that's unfair to the progressive. But it is definitely that humans are very environmentally flexible. They respond to an environment in a way that I don't think conservatives have to accept or, or tend to accept. And so I do think that some of these ideas that – different groups have different average traits and therefore will likely have different average outcomes in society even if there is no racism or bigotry that is disconcerting to sort of progressive values and so i think that causes another problem so so i i see the historical one as a little bit more legitimate and understandable I see the it violates my political desires as sort of less understandable. I mean, okay. understandable in a moral sense. I mean, it's understandable in a psychological sense. I get why it happens, but I, I'm not as sympathetic to it. Mm-hmm.
0: Doesn't it open up if you can look at culture as producing different outcomes? Doesn't that open up? I like a cultural eugenics like like not trying to sculpt actual uh human beings but trying to socially engineer a culture
1: yeah yeah you know and that's an interesting thing because p- people i think find it surprising or maybe they think i'm even lying but one of my intellectual heroes is noam chomsky and one thing that noam Chomsky, who's a famous progressive yeah. uh, um, one thing that chomsky argued throughout his career was that blank slateism, behaviorism, which he was arguing against, um, is actually a totalitarian's best friend, because it does suggest that, hey, we can shape humans to be whatever we want. And absolutely, that would sort of play into a a cultural, I don't know what you would call it, a cultural, like, we're going to create the greatest humans, and we can shape them. They're almost infinitely malleable. And it's a weird thing, because... People get very worked up if you suggest that there are these differences that are at least partially genetically caused, because they're like, oh, Nazis, this, um, whatever other nefarious group, that. But they don't have the same reaction to environmental theories, even though people such as Stalin and Mao and Pol Pot used environmental theories to promulgate some of the most disastrous policies of the 20th century.
0: Yeah, I was going to, I was going to bring that up because, uh, it's a f- critique that I've, uh, had, uh, Stephen Hicks on my channel. He talks about postmodernism mm-hmm. and he talks about, um, well, there's one narrative, I don't know if specifically from him, but the inability for the left-leaning, uh, academics to reckon with what happened when the iron curtain was raised and everybody saw exactly what, you know, how yeah. indefensible these ideas were. But that guilt yeah. doesn't translate into current po- politics where the Nazi guilt or stigma, the stigma of Nazis, it's radioactive. Whereas the stigma of the Soviet union is acceptable in some way.
1: Yeah, no, that is weird. You know, there's actually interesting, um, I forget the author now. So uh, One of the arguments about the—and maybe this is what you were talking to, Hicks, about— one of the arguments about the rise of postmodernism was that in some sense it was a reaction to the failure of communism, right? And that, yeah. you know, you had the left completely dedicated to communism, or a lot of the left at least, and then it was, it was an unmitigated disaster. And so where do you go after that, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but you're right, it is weird because they haven't really— yeah there there's like western guilt about the nazis or whatever but for some reason we don't have the same kind and now hmm. i wonder what what would have ha- well i guess east germany was communist and that was disastrous yeah yeah i don't know why that is. i don't know if it's just political expediency like hmm. you know they don't want to own that environmental pol- you know environmentalism can be equally pernicious i i'm not sure it, it is it's something that I it's an argument I've made with a lot of people who who most of my friends are on the left and when when they hear it for the first time, I think a lot of them are just shocked by it because they haven't even considered it
0: the what which argument specifically that
1: the, the argument that like look, if you're gonna say my ideas can be dangerous, so can yours and like let's think about that and think yeah. about how your these ideas also contributed to many deleterious policies, right?
0: Yeah, well, it seems like uh, this is just a shot in the dark, but it seems that the the end game of fascism is a superior, is, is some sort of superiority or some sort of rigid hierarchy or, or like mm-hmm. the elimination of everything below a certain watermark. Whereas the end goal of communism is the equalization or the, the tearing down of any sort of superiority, the yeah. complete equalization. And that's much yeah. more palpable uh, to ironically the the uh, academic elite um
1: yeah perhaps. it's yeah no I think that's right i think it, it's, it's it's interesting i I once asked this question on Twitter um I asked would you rather be a fascist or a communist <laughs> and a lot of people kept saying oh they're both the same thing like who cares and it's like no they're not I think what you said is actually a, a pretty good way of looking at it it's like Fascism is very dedicated to hierarchy, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's an important part about fascism. Yeah. And communism is dedicated to getting rid of hierarchy. And so if you have a group of people, academic progressives, who are very uncomfortable with inequality, right? It's something that causes them consternation it makes sense that they would gravitate toward an idea that says what we should do is try to make everyone roughly equal, right? Hmm. I mean, it's ironic, as you know, because these people are intellectual elites who very snobby. Yeah, very snobby. (laughs) uh, Very, which is, you know, it's one of the things that I I think Steven Pinker said this about IQ, and it's something that I've noticed as well. It's like you get these people who deny these differences, deny IQ matters or whatever, but they're obsessed with it in their life. Like if you listen to them talk about other people, it's all that person's stupid, that person's ideas are Mm -hmm, stupid. There's just a lot of this sort of intellectual Mm -hmm. grandstanding But then there are these proclamations of equality, etc., which makes me think that there's more than a little signaling going on, right? Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I wonder if why people think, uh, like they they were answering your question, that fascism and communism are the same is because they both are trying to subjugate society to a certain end or a certain vision. And it's that subjugation that makes them very similar and is what
1: wreaks the havoc that people are yeah, afraid that, of. Yeah, I think that's fair. But I, I think, like, clearly what I was trying to get at with the question is, like, how OK are you with hierarchy? Mm-hmm. I think is, is like sort of the, the main point there with hierarchy and nationalism, too, because communism was explicitly anti-nationalistic, at least before sort of Stalin faced the realities of human nature and used national, especially you can see it during World War Two, you kind of have to. Um, but like Lenin and and other thinkers were were very anti-nationalistic. They they thought the revolution would be exported everywhere and it'd be like a communist brotherhood, right? So fascism would be more nationalistic, more hierarchy. Communism less nationalistic. But in practice, it's definitely the case that in both of them, you're you're subjugating. Well, I, I mean, I guess what you're doing is you're you're taking away a lot of liberty in the name of something higher, yeah. right? Because one of my fundamental axioms of politics is that liberty and and equality are eternal enemies, right? Mm -hmm. And I I think anybody who's selling you a theory where you can have complete freedom and complete equality is selling you snake oil, right? Because you just can't. The more that you open things up and the more freedom that you have, the more you're going to create inequality.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, And the author Ian McGilchrist, believe he's a professor or doctor as well he wrote he writes a lot about the left brain right brain um split in a number of his different works i'm going through i'm just going to look it up right now because i always Mm -hmm. forget the name of of things and then i feel like an idiot when i publish (laughs) yeah the master and his emissary which is uh about the left brain right brain splits but he talks about competitive uh processing where these, uh, these things aren't necessarily enemies, these two processes, whatever they are, let's say liberty and equality, it's not that they're enemies, it's that they're, they're constantly pitted in the tug of war. And if you can get those two things to um, be in a competitive uh, kind of binary, then they can produce something in between that's stable and progressive at the same time. Like, it has elements of tradition and elements of, you know, renovation Mm
1: -hmm. going
0: back and forth between itself.
1: Uh, That that, what you just expressed might be too profound for me because I'm not sure that I grasp it completely. (laughs) Um,
0: Well, what what I'm trying to lay down is how do we get how do we put those two things into some sort of uh, pair bond, like the, the tension and then rest some sort of fruitful, stable society between liberty mm-hmm. and equality. And how do you do that with these dangerous ideas? How do you do this with, you know, these different pressures that want to push things too far in either direction?
1: Yeah, I mean, so as, as far as the freedom, freedom, equality is concerned, I, I what I think is important, and this is something that I've become more and more persuaded of the more sort of, I guess, the older and hopefully the wiser that I get is that we just have to accept and be honest about trade-offs, right? So like, if, if you're going to promote libertarianism, that's fine, but be aware that there are serious trade-offs there, same way with say socialism or something. So, you know, I think libertarianism does have some, some I, I'm not particularly fond of it, but I understand it and there is this sense that you are promoting more freedom and that's kind of a good thing. On the other hand, it's going to create more inequality. It tends to atomize people and treat them as though what they're doing is maybe not affecting other people, which, as we can see right now, is you you can sort of see where that thought breaks down because we're all very interconnected in ways. Um, Whereas sort of socialism or something where you try to make people more equal, you are taking away people's freedom. I think I think progressives, though, I, I've thought I've talked to people about this, too. It's like, you know, the the sort of slogan um, taxation is theft. Yeah,
0: yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. OK. And it's like it's kind of a silly slogan, you know, and, and whatever. But there is some truth to it. Right. It is the case that. When you redistribute resources, you are taking money from people who worked to earn it. And I I think we should just be honest about that instead of pretending that there's no trade off there. There absolutely is a trade off, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like people work hard and 30% of their income, well, I mean, at the margins, whatever, but, you know, X amount of their income goes to the government and they redistribute it. That's a trade off, you know? And I'm okay with that. I would accept it and I would just try to be honest about it and say, yeah, there's a trade off there. Um, I, I prefer a little bit more equality at the expense of a little bit of freedom. And that's okay to me. And let's have a debate about where we should like, put that line.
0: Yeah, I think that that makes sense of uh like a, a refrain that you bring up on Twitter that I've seen you do several times about nationalism. And I've been thinking about the progressive movement in the United States right now and how there's this undercurrent of anti-Americanism in it. Yeah. Like this, this, it, it, it pops up and it's pretty ugly when it pops up, but like it, it yeah. you know, there's some pretty obvious examples of it and it seems to be counterproductive to have that kind of anti-nationalist attitude inside of a movement that's trying to inspire people to work together on a civic level, to, to donate and to support everyone. It seems like that narrative itself it counteracts like trying to inspire people to work for the, the greater good.
1: I could not agree with you more, I think that's absolutely correct it's a it's a very i had a i I had a few debates with people about this and and I hope that I got somewhere with them because yeah i, I said, like look if you you're trying to get people to sacrifice something some level of freedom, but then you're also telling them you shouldn't love like this bigger unit that you're sacrificing for, right? (laughs) It's like a really bizarre thing because the way that you would get people, human nature being what it is, it's tribalistic, right? We know this. Okay. Just, you know, copious amount of literature on this. You can get people to make sacrifices, but the way that you do that is you appeal to a greater unit. Yeah. America the the greatest country in the world or whatever you want to call it mm. it's it's totally astonishing to me when people want to break down that sense of a, a larger tribal unit mm. for smaller tribal units such as racial groups or oh, yeah. or you know sexual you know like the identity politics you're, you're breaking apart that greater unit and you can kind of see this so it's interesting to to look at somebody like Bernie Sanders because Bernie Sanders is an old school class warrior. And the old school class warriors thought the main cleavage in a society is class-based. And so they thought all of these appeals to race and sexuality, they were sort of distractions and they were ways of fragmenting the working class. So you can kind of see Sanders doesn't like that, but he's had to become woke because you have to be woke in today's Democratic party so now he sort of like has to appeal to that, and you can it, that tension strikes me as like that's at the heart of like mm. the progressive movement. The tension between having this larger tribal unit and having one that breaks apart to these small interest groups that compete against each other, and and incidentally, this is probably something that happened to the union movement. Because unions in, the say, the 60s and the 70s, they weren't exactly full of woke people, right? So yeah, they were
0: working I, class, like true
1: working yeah, exa- class, yeah. I- exactly, exactly. And, and uh, just as a – well, not as a side point, but as an interesting point, I n- – now Trump's leadership during this crisis has been so appalling to me that I may not be able to vote for him. Okay. But. I consider myself a working class person who who's willing to make the trade off for more economic inequality. And I've sort of always had that view. And what's changed is where I think what which party I think can do that now. And I've actually become convinced that in maybe 8 10 years the Republican Party will be the better party for that because more of the they're more sympathetic with these working class people Precisely because they're not only are they not woke, a lot of Republicans now sort of detest wokeism. Mm -hmm. That's the attitude of the working class. Right. I grew up in the Midwest. These people, uh, the jokes that they tell that I grew up with would get you cast out of polite society now by by these sort of progressive elites. So there's this very interesting dynamic Mm -hmm. that's happening where the sort of old union people they kind of broke apart because not I mean, there are lots of causes, obviously, and I'm not yeah. a, I'm not an expert on the decline of unions, but I do know part of it is the left became more interested in sexuality and racial identity and those kinds of things than the underlying class stuff. Yeah. And, and the unions are more like we don't care if there are gay people in our in union or not. Like, that's not what we're interested in. We're interested in protecting our workers. And they're, you know, they're middle brow people. They're not obsessed with, did you use the exact right epithet for this group or that group, right? That's not, that's not what they care about. So Mm -hmm. yeah, all of that stuff is really interesting. It seems as though there's a, there's a realigning now, because the more educated elites, right, the coastal elites, um, they're in the Democratic Party now. So the, the Democratic Party is basically like, rich urban elites and minority groups and the working class more and more is joining the republican especially the white working class obviously um and yeah i don't know i don't know how you get people Hmm. to sacrifice for the greater good if you tell them that it's it's not only is it sort of like not only should you not do it but it's actually like boorish and immoral to support your country Hmm. Mm Like I remember um, Jeremy Scahill is a good example of this when people were celebrating when um, when Osama bin Laden was killed. And Scahill was like talking about how it was so embarrassing for him as an American. It's just like this, this atavistic primitive celebration of this. And it's like, Yeah. Look, I can, you know, like, okay, I can kind of see it. But like, look, this guy was the mastermind of a plot that killed three three thousand some Americans. Like, what do you expect? Of course, people are going to rally around the flag and they probably should. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) I, I there's this metaphor that that I play with every now and then that you brought to my mind again of the progressive lenses. You know, I have I wear progressive lenses, so it's they're not a they're like a trifocal, but there's this medium part where it okay. just blends in, and uh-huh. it, it's a stupid play on words, but it, like like there's there's the close up vision and then the, the long vision and then this mid range uh, uh, vision, uh, and it seems like the the progressive has a hard time with the middle. It has a hard time. It can think universally about humanity, like we're Mm -hmm. all one human. There should be no borders. But then because it can't sustain that, it eventually – uh, collapses down on the closest, most rudimentary, you know, Mm. sex, uh, sexuality, uh, race, it collapses. There's no, that middle ground, there's a problem with the middle ground and the nation resides in the middle between the the, uh, humanity as a species and humanity as these little tiny tribes. And it just like, it squeezes that out for some reason. I actually have a like hard time focusing on that
1: for some reason. I don't I don't think that's a clumsy play on word at all. I like <laughs> that. I do. No, I think because I I almost think the focusing on the the more like uh, parochial and myopic groups, the, the the those groups is is the inevitable result of getting rid of that middle ground. If yeah. you're not looking at the middle human because humans are tribal, they're going to fill that vacuum with something. And it turns out that that something today is like, uh, you know, trans trans issue, race, you know, like. Uh, I mean, it gets pretty absurd when you go into the victimology and you look at mm-hmm. like, well, what about women of color in wheelchairs or you know, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah whatever, like very specific group is now making a plea that no, we're like a greater victim group. You have to identify with us or whatever it is. Yeah. Mm. And you, you wipe out the middle. That's kind of what you get. If you have the middle, uh, I think, look, we're still gonna, you know, we're still going to notice these distinctions, but we can at least get people not to obsess about them. And I think the Mm. thing that would be nice for people to recognize, especially here, I think progressives more, it's really hard to have a multi-ethnic society. And I I think like David Frum makes this point a lot, I've heard him make it, which is ethnic conflict is the rule, not the exception, right? Like if you look through history, ethnic groups, when they live together tend to have conflict with each other. And so like the experiment that the United States is embarked on is a very bizarre and potentially dangerous experiment and so like we have to be careful about Mm. encouraging and inflaming these tensions and i think the best way to sort of subdue them is by appealing to the greater good and i mean there's tons of research on this right like if you if you look at where do you get the most racial harmony in say a high school it's always the sports teams Mm -hmm. why Because they have a greater cause. They're trying to win games. They don't care if you're who who, they don't care the color of the point guard. They want a good point guard. That's you know, that's what they care about. Mm -hmm. I want to somehow get that kind of feeling at the level of a a higher community. I'm actually reading I'm rereading Camus the Plague.
0: Yeah, is that is that helping you like like giving you some existential? like Yeah, grounding. Yeah.
1: yeah, I think so. I think okay. I have gotten to Camus, so I'm like, okay, I'm I'm going I'm reverting to my like adolescent existentialism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. Like what's what's the meaning of life? What what am I even doing here, you know? Cuz you you sort of get comfortable with the way things are and, you, you know, you, I think it's good that we usually forget about it, right? We're like, I have stuff to do. I'm teaching my students. I'm running in the morning. I'm doing whatever it is, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, something like this where everything kind of comes to a pause. You start to contemplate, hey, you know, if I die in a month from now, what's the point of it all? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the answer is there isn't one.
0: <laughs> so you – you you max out on like there is no why kind of yeah.
1: On Unfo- I wish I I wish I did it like I have great respect for say religion for example which does provide like a pretty reasonable why. Um, but I'm I'm not a believer so ultimately I I I max out at you know you make your own purpose while you're alive and that's that.
0: Okay, well that goes back to what we were talking about before. The technology failed us about nationalism, about having a stable uh, narrative structure yeah. between the universal and the, I guess, identitarian group. And yes. with, doesn't religion fill in that for most people? And how would you replace that with a nationalism without like a God, the ideal of a, of a transcendent? meaning structure?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I actually kind of worry about replacing religion with nationalism, because you can kind of see where you tried to do that with socialism, or well, communism and fascism sort of both tried to replace religion that way. And I, I I don't, I don't know if this is true. But I do think that, as I wrote in that, that Twitter thread that you were discussing, that religious belief is very natural. and, And I fear that if you attempt to eradicate it you just leave a vacuum for probably more pernicious religious type phenomena to fill mm-hmm. so I, I I and a number of other people have made the argument that social justice warriorism if you will is a kind of religion and I think it's a worse religion <laughs> so so I actually fear I, I don't I I want nationalism to work with religion in some sense or religion to be like uh, What Yuval levin and others call like an intermediary institution, right? Like some some sort of institution below the national level because I think those are important as well um, But I've become I was never very um, Very sympathetic to the new atheist. I don't I, I don't know How old are you now 30? I'm 40 something. OK, so you went through the the new atheist, you know, like when they were quite popular. I'm early. aware that it was happening, but I was
0: involved in other things.
1: OK, yeah. So, you know, it's a big because so, I was an atheist at the time, of course, as I still am. But mm-hmm. um, I I argued against it because I thought it was intellectually pre, presumptuous, I suppose, Um Kind of misguided to believe that you could just eradicate this thing that had been around for thousands upon thousands of years, you know. <laughs> um, and so, I was never really sympathetic to the militant atheism, but I'm even more. Uh, skeptical of it now and, and much more sympathetic actually to certain variants of Christianity especially. It's the religion I know the best. I mean, there's no particularly chauvinistic reason for that. Mm-hmm. Although I would say that I think what's important about Christianity is that it's been disciplined by its, by its need to reconcile itself to a post-enlightenment society. And I, I think that sort of dialectic between the supernatural and superstitious and the Enlightenment and the way that they had to interact and that religion had to sort of, you know, Christianity had to change or sort of adjust to. Christianity
0: had to adjust or reconcile itself with another worldview that didn't have a God in it or didn't have uh, room for faith.
1: Yeah, or yes, or at least yeah. To a to a pro a very pro science secular you know secular worldview, it had to somehow figure out how to adjust in that kind of a world in a way that my understanding is at least that say Islam did hasn't had to exactly right. Uh, I mean, now I'm I'm not an expert on the history of Islam, and I do, I don't want to make sweeping statements, but from people I've talked to and I I read books on it, it, it does seem as though that there's something there and that maybe that's why Christianity is is more able, in my opinion, to promote values that are important to, to Western liberal societies than some other religions are. And therefore, I'm, I'm sympathetic to to Christianity because of that. And because I do think, uh, I, you know, there's um, hmm. Christopher Hitchens, for example, is basically God poisons everything, uh, you know, so, but... Uh, I think it's just manifestly the case that a lot of religious believers are motivated to do very good things by their religion. And I, I don't know that you can replace that. And if you do replace it with something more novel, mm-hmm. so you know, like wokeism, for example. Yeah, which hasn't really I been wor- tested Exactly, exactly. And th- this is where my, I guess you could call it my Burkeanism comes out. Like, I, I, I trust things that have had to adjust and evolve more than I do novel things. Mm-hmm. It seems to me
0: that I, well, my question or my skepticism of a non, uh, non religious belief system is that how many, how many people can it support before it starts to manifest Religious behaviors like how many Mm -hmm. how many people could be atheists in a society before that atheist Tribe starts to manifest certain behaviors that we've seen that are negatively looked upon in religion like uh, You know policing guilt tripping like Uh there's there's a beautiful article uh, That was printed on slate Stark codex about how new new atheism devolved into social justicism. Uh, And I think Mm -hmm. it's because the the social dynamics require some sort of glue, some sort of moral fabric, um, and without some sort of transcendent narrative with this, this atheism is purporting to have a non-narrative or a completely, a radically open-ended narrative where you Mm -hmm. can never believe anything. You always have to be open to proof.
1: Her question. Yeah, that, you know what, that's actually, I, I hadn't thought of it exactly the way you put it, but you're right, it's almost as if what you could, so so I think you can get individuals who are atheists, who are skeptical, who who actually evince all of those characteristics, but you're right, it's almost as if it, it's like a kind of like force where the, the more people you get into that group, the more likely it just is to become quasi-religious, and so yeah i don't you're right i don't think you could sustain a real movement or of any kind of thing that was totally devoid of some kind of transcendental narrative Mm -hmm. and then then the question is right what's the best transcendental narrative to have right so it's just a question of like which one should we have which is more harmful etc and it seems to me that the some versions of the Christian transcendental narrative I find immensely appealing. The emphasis on humility, charity, uh, meekness, I mean, taking care of other people, all of these things that are like maybe unnatural. And so I don't want to say, I mean, because we have these, we have both pro-social and anti-social tendencies. (laughs) So so basically the point is, I, I think that some version of Christianity seems to promote the the pro-social tendencies and has been tested much more than new new religious replacements such as wokeism or even you know like uh, like New Ageism. Oh, there's just this energy everywhere yeah. or whatever. <laughs> you know these things that I just don't see how they can actually work for lar- for coordinating large groups of people. Does that,
0: the, does that hold true, you think, with existentialism? Like, like, going back to, like, you recognizing or reverting into the existential, open-ended, what does it mean? There's no right. reason, but I still have to wonder it, because that's yeah. where meaning's made. <laughs> uh, right. C- can you, as a person, maintain that for any extended period of time? And how many people can maintain that without it, um, you know?
1: Yeah, that's a good question, because you're right. Like existentialism basically becomes its own narrative, except for the narrative kind of like a meta narrative. So it's like mm. our narrative is there isn't a narrative, but you have to keep asking for a narrative. And that's like what it is to be human. Uh, yeah. I don't think existentialism is is w- would provide sustenance for enough people to be particularly popular. Um it, it works for me because um, I can't believe even though I kind of would like to. So mm. so as somebody who would like to sort of had some transcendent meaning, um, I, I can sympathize with the sort of disappointment of people who you can tell clearly have like Albert Camus, I think, for example, clearly had like religious longings, you can kind of tell. And in fact, uh, of, of the French existentialists, I think he was more sympathetic to religion than say Sartre or De Beauvoir. Um, and that's why I find him a more interesting thinker. Hmm. Uh, but I, I, think, I, I think it's almost like just, comes down to personality at that point It's like okay you know what kind of personality do you have i have like kind of an existentialist personality because i have religious longings that i can't satisfy with religion so i satisfy Hmm. it via art film you know film novels poetry can i ask
0: why you disallow yourself is it a predisposition of like not trusting the certainty involved in that
1: Oh, of religion yeah you, you i just said, i can't i can't, can't intellectually accept it okay Yeah. so like i actually grew up christian i was christian until I, I don't want i can't put an age exactly on it but i was i was never like a, a conservative christian or anything i was more of a very very liberal type christian um really just some of the intellectual arguments were too much for me to get around the problem of evil I thought was uh, Mm -hmm. impossible to get around. um, And I didn't find the the cause causal arguments or arguments from design, particularly persuasive. So yeah, Yeah. really, it's more of an intellectual thing for me. Okay,
0: yeah, because somebody who responded to you, I've had, I've interviewed uh, Esther, uh, oh
1: pastor. yeah, O'Reilly or whatever. O'Reilly,
0: yeah. And, yeah, which is a pseudonym, but um yeah. and, and I've had her on and we we talk about that and she reverts into uh rational arguments about religion and mm-hmm. and th- she loses me because I'm like religion the intellectual sphere is encased by religion. The intellectual sphere can't encase religion. There's there's a there's a part of the human experience that that religion is speaking to that that isn't doesn't match up and shouldn't match up shouldn't be solved by an intellectual process. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? It's like yeah, it's like okay. like the hand is trying to grasp what the body is and and like the hand right. is a part of the body. It can't.
1: Okay, so but to push them. back on that, um, I mean, if I. I I do think the new atheists were correct insofar as they they argued that some religious claims are empirical propositions. So like the claim, for example, that God created the universe and God is all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing, etc. Th- those are empirical claims. And it seems as though we could have intellectual arguments about those claims, couldn't we? So like if you say to me, God is all loving and all powerful. It does seem fair to me to say back to you, if that's the case, then why is there so much suffering in the world? And if you just said, well, you, you can't grasp that intellectually as somebody who values reason but does recognize the limits of it, but in yeah. this case of an empirical claim, I would say I can't I can't believe that then. I m- maybe Maybe there's some weird thing going on that I can't comprehend, but once you put properties on it, then Mm -hmm. we can argue about it, right? That's the difference is like once you say all loving and all powerful, if those terms are to mean something, then we can argue about what they mean and what would the implications be, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Does that seem reasonable?
0: yeah so yeah. certain claims within the religion that that you grew up in just they yes. don't they don't add up once you start going down the path of
1: yeah i don't I don't think it's possible to reconcile all powerful all loving with the world that we inhabit okay
0: and <laughs> and yet there's still a part of you that longs for something that that leaps out of that argumentation, and that, yes that gap is replaced or filled with what you said
1: is art the non rational yes. perhaps music, the relational. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Things that th- things that aren't. I-, I think science is like one part of the world. And and in fact, I've written things in defense of scientism. Hmm. But what's weird is I get a lot of pushback and criticism on that. But I don't think science is the only way to sort of the only mode of operating in the world. In fact, quite the contrary. I think it's a very circumscribed way of doing it and that I g- I get more despite the fact that I'm a scientist, you know, it's my job, or was at least, I get more out of art and film and music than I do out of science. But hmm. if it comes to understanding the world intellectually, I think science is the only way to go, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? The insights that you get, say, from watching The Godfather, you you could intellectualize some of those insights, but mostly it's an immersive experience that you can't really It doesn't even make sense to translate that into an, you know what I mean? Like, like we could talk about Beethoven's fifth intellectually. Mm -hmm. And if we had somebody here who had never listened to it, they would have no clue what we were talking about. Right. They'd be like, that sounds, you know, who cares? Right. And then we'd play it for them (laughs) and they'd be like, oh yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I just, uh, so, and this, my, my ultimate argument or I guess my belief in belief is that we do need some sort of story in order to capture the meaning of our experience to give a beginning a middle and an end to our rationalization about ourselves as entities in this chaotic experience and Mm -hmm. that, that insofar as the human, the human experience is rational to a certain degree is intellectual is verbal. But mm-hmm. also sensual, also incredibly emotional, filled with action and reaction. The the container for any philosophy is going to be a, a story. Uh, mm-hmm. a, a, a philosophy can live inside of a story, but it's very rare that a story can can. Mm-hmm. Completely be contained by a philosophy, right? So, so intellectualism yeah. is is a domain of a broader experience, and what fills that gap for our brains, for our minds, it would uh-huh. be would be narrative, which is a pre rational way of verbalizing
1: the world. So, I wonder if it's even more primitive than narrative, though. Mm. So, I'm, I'm I'm getting to like, uh, are you familiar with the French philosopher Henri Bergson? No, or I'm some not. of these so, some of these people like okay so like narratives very important to me and i was i've always been attracted to myth and joseph campbell and you know jordan peterson's got onto this and star wars and that kind of stuff really appealed to me but i think even below that mm-hmm. there's even like a more primitive just emotional sense of of wonder and bafflement at reality that the second you attempt to intellectualize it it, it, it disappears right mm-hmm. it's, it's almost like uh um uh, you know, like it's like uh, the, 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 the dust in a, in a shaft of light where you turn the light on and it's gone. Mm -hmm. You can't analyze it further. It's just, you know, it's like this this primitive sense of who knows what it is, right? It's just this, I'm an existing being that's, maybe it's even pre-conscious, it's just this astonishment at being and and Mm -hmm. I'm trying to describe it. And of course, I'm I'm blundering it because you can't describe it.
0: I wonder if, um, and this is kind of my own personal stuff, but working like with rationality, I I, I admit constantly, and I constantly uh, am aware of things that operate below or beyond the rational. But I firmly mm-hmm. believe that the rational is the best method of making decisions and of working with other people and of communicating and testing uh, suppositions and and then proceeding in, in you know in a way that creates a, a desired more or less desired result. Um, mm-hmm. But in in my own journey, my own process of development and figuring out how do I, how do I recognize that I, 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 how do I live in the, in the awareness of being without being awash in that new energy, you know, like just (laughs) that incommunicable (laughs) stuff, but still have, have an awareness and, and that, that comes out in my behavior or, or in other people's behavior, like with atheism, with the new atheism, what really turned me off was an aesthetic property of the arrogance of a lot mm-hmm. of what, what goes on in atheist yeah. communities, like this incredible arrogance. And, and I, I find just as much arrogance in, in religious communities because people yeah. think that I have the answer, I know the way, the truth, the life, you know, and I know how I'm saved. But there's right. a way of threading that needle of being um, – connected to something much greater as a proposition perhaps uh or just this open-ended uh you know kind of the shaft of light is there even if i don't see it but it's still illuminating everything
1: yeah so i almost feel as though we're gonna start talking in like uh yeah. gobbledygook or, yeah. or bad bad poetry because yeah. <laughs> you're no right. you're right yeah but, but but i'll just comment on the the I find the religious arrogance more tolerable than the new atheist arrogance because the new atheist arrogance seems more hypocritical to me. Right. Because it's it's sort of it's, you know, the premise of new atheism is kind of like we're ultra rash. I mean, in fact, Daniel Dennett used the term brights at some point, which, you know, spectacularly dim term to use. Right. <laughs> um, and it just seems as though that's where you get that's where there's like a danger, uh, a hypocritical danger of actually being dogmatic. Um Mm -hmm. while you're promoting this open-minded rational view of the world and so like i almost have more respect for a completely dogmatic puritan because they're claiming they know the one way they're not even proclaiming we're open-minded rationalists or something yeah okay but yeah i mean i think both the human mind clearly has a tendency toward dogma and uh, a, a sort of tight-fisted ideology that's hard to avoid. And mm-hmm. you, you can go in that direction in many ways, right? Whether it's ultra-scientism, which is not the scientism that I defend, but it's like this view that we can understand everything, and science is the only way to do anything, and um, religion. And I don't know how you avoid it either. I guess, like, humility... This is my brand of conservatism. It's like yeah. a, a kind of humble uh so you were you were saying for example about reason or rationality or whatever i'm not even sure that that rationality is the best way to make all decisions right i it's probably actually a bad way of making many decisions i've often said this to people i've said like the the reason that we don't use reason all the time is because it's too fallible we're wrong so often and like if you were that if you were wrong that often just navigating your everyday life you would be dead pretty quickly right yeah (laughs) like a lot of these things we have intuitions things that are hardwired or at least like semi-hardwired and and we do things without thinking about it we move our hand from the hot stove you don't have to you know reason about why you do that um and so i actually think one of the things that conservatism and, and really reading the literature has taught me is how important it is to recognize that aspect of human decision making and then how that plays out in institutions as well, right so institutions we create institutions we often don't know what they're going to do right we have no you know we're like, okay, we have this problem we want to try to solve it so you make an institution and of course it has twenty two different consequences, only three of which are what you expected yeah. and then what happens is we slowly over time we adjust those and then, the, the the sort of rationalist comes along and is like, well this is stupid. Like why do we have this? Let's just tear it down and start over. And and they're ignoring the hundred years of wisdom that are built into that, right? Yeah. 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 Well So I think sorry, go ahead. Well here, let me give one example if I can and then we can so like I, I think of it like this and I I I don't think I'm the first person to give this example, although when I did I had it I hadn't heard it elsewhere. I thought like I was in a debate and I said, okay, so like the conservative is the person that sees the speed limit is 35 and thinks I should go 35. The liberal sees the speed limit is 35 and thinks this is stupid. Why would there be a 35 speed limit here? I'm going to go 55, right? Because the conservative thinks there's probably something that I don't know Hmm. about this particular law or whatever, and I'm going to follow it. And the liberal's like, I need, you know, like, I don't see the reason for it. Therefore, I'm, I'm, let's change it. Let's I'm gonna try to test wrap. it anew. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, of course there are, there are costs and benefits to both ways of viewing the world, but I do think there, are, I have gained a profound respect for this sort of idea of the wisdom built in institutions via cultural evolution, mm-hmm. uh, just in the past five years, really.
0: Uh, wh- why the last five years, just because of the, uh, the change in the culture over the last five
1: years? No, actually, like a lot of it is, um, believe it or not, I was like a a massive progressive for most of my life. Um, I can tell. Okay. (laughs) 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 um, No offense. (laughs) Yeah, no, 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 none taken. But to be clear, I was never like a a woke identity progressive. I was always more of the economic, you know, Chomskyite progressive, if you will. Uh, I actually just sort of gradually Listening to Russ Roberts and reading Steven Pinker's The Better Angels, in fact, are two things that really compelled me to reconsider my worldview. And then I started reading the original conservative thinkers, you know, Edmund Burke, even even some of the reactionaries, such as De Mestre, I don't know how you pronounce that, Joseph de Mestre, a French reactionary thinker, mm-hmm. um, John Adams, uh, you know, Madison, maybe you would put in the tradition, Russell Kirk, etc. And through reading them and also people um, like Joseph Henrich, who write about culture evolution, and actually the book, um, The Secret of Our Success, which is just an absolutely terrific book, really emphasizes how important this, like, this knowledge that's built into these institutions that no individual understands, right? Like you couldn't recreate this and you don't have this knowledge. It's it's somehow everybody's knowledge is put into the institution. And if you ask me to defend the institution, I probably can't because I don't know why it's there exactly, right? It's like asking me, why is the price of a Tootsie Roll what it is? I have no idea, but that price sends a signal about, you know how much demand there is for it, how much it costs to produce it, etc. That that's like a collective wisdom thing. Like Hayek talks about this, right? This mm-hmm. sort of collective signal that's built into this that any one individual is completely ignorant of. This is a really big question, so I don't expect you to have an answer. But
0: did, did is the Western civilization unique in the fact that, that we have created a, a progressivism within our traditional structures, like? <laughs> and did did we do, are we able to afford that? Is that some some sort of dy- dynamism that has arisen over time? In and of itself, as an institution I'll that bet tears down
1: the institution. Yeah, I'll bet. Uh, no, I'll, I'll, I'll. Yeah, I'll bet that there. I mean, I don't. I, I don't want to suggest that it doesn't belong in any or you know, it's completely unique to Western civilization. But I, I bet you're right that there is something about. The West does seem to have like a sort of self-critical, yeah, attitude almost built into the institutions, a skepticism about the institution built into the institution that is interesting. And you're right, like, yeah, so there's an interesting dialectic there, right, between the, the sort of, you know, conservative, the institution has this collective wisdom and you don't know why we have the institution there so like be careful about criticizing it coupled with this very critical Thomas Jefferson I think of that as the the mm-hmm. sort of Jefferson Adams dialectic right the Jeffersonian I mean at one point in in a letter he um he he was sort I, I don't know how serious he was about this but he was speculating that you know maybe we should remake the constitution every 25 years because it's it's intolerable that one generation should be chained to the rules of the previous generation right <laughs> it's like yeah. talk about radical that's like burn it all down every 25 years but that that dynamism between somebody like an adams who's m- more traditional although i mean obviously he was a vital part of the american revolution which was a revolution but th- yeah that dialectic's really interesting and i have sympathy for both sides and um, i think i I tend to emphasize my my conservative leanings simply because mm. everybody I'm around is liberal. Yeah, and so it's it's I feel as though it's more important for me to defend conservatism to them in an intellectually respectable way, and I'm more critical of liberalism because that's the sea I swim in, right? Yeah. That's what I'm around. If I. Think- if I yeah, sorry,
0: go ahead. I think a portion of your critics, the the critics that I read, uh, at least on Twitter, don't understand <laughs> that or don't put it in perspective of you. Are, you're representing underrepresented ideas. And so they attack you as being conservative or they, they go right. overboard. They, they they paint you as some sort of, you know, apologist for, you know, the, the, the alt-right, right. yeah. you know, if you turn yeah. it all the way up there. But they don't understand that you're actually – you're trying to balance a conversation. You're not necessarily – Uh, you representing or or embodying all these conservative ideas, you're trying to bring them into constellation and keep keep the dialogue going.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, often I get like, well, why don't you, you know, you don't criticize conservatives, or people complain about that to me, I'm like, look, like, you know, we all have a limited amount of time, of course, so we can only do so much, but also, everybody I'm around criticizes conservatives, like, I'm well, I was in academia (laughs) until not too long ago. So like everything I was around was critical of conservatives. If I grew up in an entirely conservative community and lived in one now, I would criticize conservatism more, Um, you know, and and if academia changes or mainstream intellectual culture, let's say, if that changes, then I will I would criticize conservatism more. Mm -hmm.
0: There's a. To back to the, the progressivism inside of Western culture, it, to me, I, I went to Lucifer, like the Miltonian Lucifer. It's like yeah, the, the structure being God, like the superstructure that you could never understand because it's too complex, uh-huh. has given a rise to something that rebels against it and seeks to destroy it. And somehow that initiates a process of a renewal of the very principle that's being challenged or, or some sort of evolution of the entire structure. Um
1: it's, it's, really, just,
0: it's a weird thing to toy around with.
1: I I lo- I love I love the reference to to Milton Satan. So it's interesting to think about this because um, I've talked to people about this and like I, I did you are you from literary studies? Yeah, basically. Yeah. Okay, so so you know how like the the Romantics were like, well, Satan's the hero of the poem, right? Like William Blake, you know, like. He, he was of Satan's party, though he didn't know it because he's a poet or whatever the line was from him. Okay, so like, yeah. but to, Mil- to Milton, Satan was not the hero, right? To, to Milton, God's the hero in that yeah. order, and Satan is this person who's rebelling. And you can see this. It's a built, yeah, you're right. It's like, it's a sort of like principle that sort of becomes a part of Western civilization through Protestantism, probably in the Romantic movement, of saying the hero of that is Satan, is the person who says, Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven, right? Yeah, yeah. And I've actually thought like people's your attitude towards Satan in that poem tells me a lot about like the type of person you are. So if you hmm. if you read Paradise Lost and you're like Satan rules, you can kind of see like okay, and you can understand it, right? Because he's he's an interesting character. Yeah. Um. How, how many how many twenty year olds would read Paradise Lost and be like God's awesome? <laughs> well, there's a certain portion of him. Maybe, but it's, like, weird because it's this inscrutable God who, like, is like, you have to obey me, but there's no real reason for it. And Satan's kind of this guy who's like, why? Why do I have to obey you? Yeah, and and that's sort of more relatable. I remember when I was 20 and I read it and I was like – I was scribbling furiously in the side, like, Satan's awesome, (laughs) yeah, you know.
0: (laughs) So then the next question or the problem is that what happens when the Luciferian rebellion overtakes an institution or becomes the god of the institution? What happens (laughs) when (laughs) academia becomes all about rebelling against the status quo? The status quo itself becomes Becomes. some sort of – anti-status quo status quo,
1: I mean, it's a weird thing, though, because it's like I think what ends up happening is you act as though you haven't won the victory, yet. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So like I, I you you hear these people in the mainstream media and academia. they act as though they're beleaguered on all sides. and that they're that it's like, dude, you won the culture war like five years ago, man. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, like gay marriage. You know, and so you find these smaller and smaller issues to obsess about, like uh, trans trans people in sports as if this is like an intolerable affront to human dignity or something. And, and you act as though there's still like the next culture war to win and win and win, because, it, you mm. know, it's sort of, I mean, it, it's the the sort of proverbial shark that has to I, it's not actually true. But yeah, in, in the saying, it has to keep swimming. So it's like. Yeah, if you have this ideology, what do you do? I mean, because conservatism can be an ideology of stasis. Let's keep things the way they are, Yeah, uh, and let's do that. That can kind of work, but progressivism really can't be, right? It has to be like, there's a new enemy, we're fighting this next battle, we're making things better. Um, Yeah, Mm. so that is interesting, because in my opinion, and see what you think about this, Like, seems to me in academia and the mainstream media – Progressivism has triumphed spectacularly. I mean, that seems that way to me, at least. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, but there's nothing resisting against it, or or insofar as it is being resisted against. Uh, it seems like progressivism is unable to adequately... Um, Tone down its rhetoric to the needs of the situation. Like what happened at Evergreen uh, State College, you're aware mm-hmm. of my work on that. Yes, um,
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: What happened is that they they tried to take the the moral importance of the '60s civil rights movement and yeah. import the same amount of rhetoric and urgency to mm-hmm. the you know the 2017s, right? Right, it, right. But the scale was totally off. So that when the, right, the kids right. started to act out this, you know, this great American uh, morality play, they had to fabricate all of the injustice in order to justify what they'd been taught was something that they needed to do right now. And I feel that progressivism, it, it, it's not adequately tuning, attuning itself to the actual very fine granular needs of the current moment.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I think you see this with all you know, you can kind of see this with like sort of the way we measure racism in social psychology, for example, you know, like used to be you could just ask people, do you want to live next to somebody who's a different race from you? And they would say, no, I don't. (laughs) Yeah. And then over time, it got to the point where pretty much everybody's like, I don't care. And so you had to create these more subtle instruments like symbolic racism. But then if you look at the symbolic racism scale, you're actually picking up like things that aren't racist in any clear sense of the word. Right. Like, it, it, you know, like these will ask racial resentment scale, ask a question like this. Um, African-Americans should just pull themselves up by the bootstraps the way like Italians and Irish people did or something. It's like, well, that's an empirical question. It doesn't strike me that it's racist to suggest that maybe some of the problems in their community are self-caused and that they should work harder. I mean, maybe that's true. Maybe that's not. But it's not Mm -hmm. racist to suggest that it is true. Right. Mm So. So, yeah, it's you have to act as though there are all these massive outrages. Mm-hmm. That if if you don't see these outrages, you you're must be blinkered by your own bigotry. And I don't see the world that way. I, I mean, I see there are problems in our society, um, and you know, like to me, the biggest problem is is like the the way that society is becoming riven by cognitive ability and the great cognitive sort. Mm-hmm. But that's a different question for. The, I don't I think there are individuals who are racist and I think there are individuals who are probably sexist but I don't think society is either racist or sexist as a whole. In fact, I would I would argue that it's the opposite. Mainstream society works so hard to be anti-racist and to be anti-sexist that in fact it's it's basically explicitly Hostile toward white men. Now, I'm not saying white men are getting the shaft. I don't, you know, that's I don't think that's true. But the explicit rhetoric of society is mm-hmm. basically hostile to white men.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You brought up the cognitive distribution. What'd you say? The cognitive rift. Yeah, like a yeah, terrible yeah, the, the way, science fiction. The, vision of what's happening <laughs> yes. to us
1: yes yeah it really is right it is this it's this i mean this idea that like society is becoming more and more sort this is idea that uh especially like charles murray has talked about in the book coming apart that the idea that society is becoming better and better at sorting people by cognitive ability and as it does that you get this gap between say people of 120 iq and above and people say 90 and below Hmm. and they inhabit almost completely different worlds Uh. Uh, and as freedom increases i think this is an interesting thing because we've been talking a lot about these narratives that people need and like people often complain and argue that when i say this is condescending or paternalistic or something but i don't think it is and what it is is this People who have a 130 IQ, I think, can inhabit a different kind of intellectual world than somebody who has uh, an IQ of, say, 95. And I think the person with 130 IQ might be able to live in a world without a strong like narrative that guides his or her life in a way that somebody with a lower IQ might need more guidance. Mm-hmm. And that's not meant to be condescending. It's just an accurate description of the world. In fact, I think the dangerous thing is denying this and pretending that it's not true. Hmm. I think that that does no service to somebody who who struggles in life because they don't have the guidance that they need. And so I'll give you a concrete example. Polyamory. I, I see, and, and I, I, I really like Jeffrey Miller, and he and I disagree about this, to some degree at least. Mm-hmm. I think polyamory is probably a kind of lifestyle that some super intelligent people might be able to achieve without causing relationship disaster. I I believe that they might be able to do that. I am skeptical that it's something that could scale at all to society. And I'm also, I'm, I'm worried that it's something that people would find appealing because what they see is, oh, that means I get to have sex with like five women, you know, and, and I'm, I'm concerned that they would do that and it would actually be disastrous in a way that maybe if you're a 140 IQ and you've really thought about it carefully and you're like, OK, we'll do it this way. We'll try to turn off jealousy a bit. We'll try to be responsible. Maybe they can pull that off. And, and so that's like one example but I also think religion might be the same way. I think hmm. it's probably the case, and there's some literature on this, by the way, um, including a, an article, I i don't know, I'm like third or fourth author on that, Corey Clark is first author on, about the way that religion interacts with IQ in such a way that it seems as though if you're higher in IQ and self-control, you might not need religion as much. It might not serve the the self-control enhancing uh, mm-hmm. functions that it does for people who are lower in self control, and maybe lower in, in cognitive ability. And again, I don't mean that in a condescending way. It's just like a description of the world.
0: Mm-hmm. But what happens when when reality falls out of the control of the super smart person? What happens when Corona comes through and uh, imminent existential threat r- starts rubbing up against the uh,
1: 140? Guy. Well, yeah. I mean, we're kind of seeing like this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like what we're seeing. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't. I don't know. I don't. I mean,
0: well, I, I, by which I mean is that there are situations in everybody's life that are beyond control. There's there's yes. proce- there's processes within you that yeah. escape beyond your control, and I yeah. uh, I would say that a, a narrative structure or some sort of practice um uh, allows you to have the humility to say that i'm witnessing something that's out of control without myself becoming out of control
1: yeah you uh, might be right I, you I might identify. be right and that that might be that that sort of rootlessness mm. that that maybe you know, a lot of us experience a lot of the hyper educated people have is like but maybe it's like it's yeah, you come face to face with with a real threat or something, and it's it's truly disconcerting. I mean, I, I think this kind of rootlessness, by the way, is something you can only get in a very peaceful and affluent society. You have to so you're it. right. Yeah, so I I like actually I, I I'm enjoying watching libertarians kind of melt down during this crisis because <laughs> you can see it's like libertarianism is a is a, this kind of a philosophy that develops in a peaceful, affluent world. All of a sudden, a crisis comes and it turns out, well, I mean, a few people do, but almost nobody wants to be libertarian anymore. They're like, yeah, like we need to crack down. We need this. We need that central government. Take care of this. Take care of that. Uh, And libertarians, some of them are trying to still defend freedom and like, fuck you. You're not going to tell me I have to stay in my house or whatever. And right, you can see the the Mm -hmm. sort of illusion that is breaking is the illusion that you are an atom that doesn't affect other people. Right. Because you can see with the disease, it's amazing how interdependent everybody is. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But by the way, it's interesting because I think this holds for morality, too. So, you know, there's the don't tell me what I do, you know, what I do in my bedrooms, my business or whatever. Mm -hmm. But it's not your business because what you do in your bedroom affects everybody else. Because if you decide you're going to have sex with 72 women, they might have children. Uh, you might encourage other people to do it if they find out about it. I mean, there's just this this notion, this mythical idea that we're atoms that don't have effects on other people. Hmm. It's just it's it's truly belied by what's happening now, like very palpably. so. Yeah.
0: Yeah, when you were talking about uh, the 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 cognitive distribution or the, the you know the one hundred and forty group or the one hundred and twenty and above and then the ninety yeah. group, right? And and yeah. I got this picture of you know like the uh, the stereotypical progressive claim of injustice, like where you have L.A. where you have like these really posh you know estates yeah. surrounded by the uh, the homeless encampments, and right. I'm wondering if. If that doesn't if that doesn't happen in morality, if that doesn't happen in intelligence, and and what I was thinking about Bernie Sanders, his platform of the billionaires are the enemy, or the millionaires and the billionaires are the enemy, and like he has mm-hmm. this, he stratifies uh, the country into the the haves and the have nots, and and because yes. it's so extreme, he can afford to do that. But my my worry is that he's not bringing the billionaires into relationship with the poor. He's just pitting the poor against the billionaires. So I wonder on the level of cognition, on the level of intelligence, if there's not some sort of civic duty, if there's not some sort of mer- meta-narrative, this idea of the nation, this idea of humanity that allows mm. not only the the, the low-intelligence people to have guidance in their daily life, but gives uh, motivates or incentivizes the really intelligent people to give their their extra intelligence to in service to yes,
1: you know, the rest of everybody else? Yeah, how I think that I mean, that? there's a lot to unpack. And that. like so that it's all. Uh, so one thing that struck me and I, 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 I Bernie Sanders, the Democrats now like one thing that they do is they, they it seems to me the most important inequality in society is not economic, although that matters. It's cultural. It's how much cultural capital do you have? And when Bernie Sanders rails on billionaires and millionaires or whatever, it kind of rings hollow to me because I think what matters more to the people that I talk to, like Midwestern folk, is that they feel that they're condescended to by a mainstream educated elite. And that's cultural inequality. There's sort of this, the, the, the sort of woke... Who judge you for everything and you know scold you for saying the wrong epithet and you don't have the right beliefs about this or that and if you like two and a half men then you're a hopeless philistine and we only watch the wire and you you know what I mean like and foreign independent films that kind of inequality is much more visceral you feel it right away when somebody has that attitude about you right like. Yeah, there are billionaires, but the fact of the matter is, like, I don't see billionaires. They, it doesn't mean much to me. It doesn't hurt me the way that it, you know, remember that feeling that you had if you walked into, like, a party and you could just tell that you didn't belong there and nobody gave a shit that you were there? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you're just like, oh, like, I these pe- I hate these people. They hate me. Oh. That's the feeling that a lot of people have in today's society when the educated elites in the mainstream media talk to them. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the greater inequality and that's the cognitive inequality. It's this inequality of education. And I don't think I act, This gets back to the point I was talking about with like Republicans, I think might be in a better position to handle this because I think that they're handling the cultural inequality better than Democrats are now. I think Democrats have become the party of the woke. The party of the hyper-educated, and that means they're inevitably actually going to promote that kind of inequality. Mm-hmm. And no, and I agree with you. That's I think nationalism, religion. I think is another good source of this. I, I've had conversations, for example, Razib Khan and I were talking about the importance of religion because it's the one thing. Well, maybe not the only thing, but it's it's one of the unique institutions in our society still where you have a blend of cognitive abilities all together. Right. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, you were at Evergreen State. I, w- I was at Florida State in a grad program. And like you're only around people whose IQs are 120 and above. You know, like I don't see people and I don't talk to people who are below 120 And in fact, it's it's amazing because, you know, a lot of these academics, if your IQ is 120, they think you're stupid. They they really do. (laughs) And I'm like, do you have any idea? Like, you know, like these uh, professors would complain about students, I remember. And I'm like, dude, these students are like they're probably a standard deviation smarter than the average person in the population, man. (laughs) You know, so religion though you go to you go to your church you don't care anymore about who's smart or who's not you care about your beliefs and you join in that and you feel camaraderie because of that and that bonds people across the cognitive divide and you're right i, I think we have to figure out and nationalism's another way of doing this figure out a way of making people feel that they owe they have a duty to to the greater good like the way that military would too right and there's another thing is a problem is like Progressives, and I don't want to go too far with this because I think Democrats have a largely favorable attitude toward the military. But there are definitely progressives who are kind of hostile to the military, to police departments, to fire departments, etc. These are the kinds of things where you 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 know you blend cognitive abilities together, and if we lose that, we're going to be in trouble.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about like religion and i was thinking about religion can can put somebody's beauty in service to the whole group rather than yes and i was just thinking of like a very beautiful singer she goes up to the front of the church and she renders her gift to to the whole congregation it's yes, no longer exactly. you know like she'd be criticized or for for making it all about her it's not about her but right. the whole Community gets to participate in her beauty, and she gets to be almost free of that weight of being, you know, paid attention to all the time for being beautiful, you know. Yeah,
1: way. because, yeah, and that and that's the same thing, thing. With,
0: with intelligence, like with art, like what the yes. Catholic Church has, has done with the amazing skill of the Renaissance artists and stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah, and in fact, like, you know, it's an interesting, um, it's, it's sort of an interesting. Again, getting back to this dialectic between like individualism and and sort of like the tribe or whatever, because it is true. Individualism is often good. Right. But one of the side effects is that your gifts start to become more about you. You're the artist. I'm going to sign my name. I want what I, I deserve the credit for this. Whereas say before that the idea was my gifts are from god and i'm i'm rendering them onto the church or onto the people and it's not about me i'm just some conduit or whatever right yeah and as the trick is like where's the you know because renaissance is awesome like i don't want to scale back that or something so you have to kind of find the balance between yeah your your gift is i think of it like a basketball player like mm-hmm. if i'm on a team I'm no good at basketball, by the way, so I don't know why I use this example, but it's just a clear one. Like, if I'm on a team and there's somebody who's better than I am on the team, I'm happy because that means I'm going to win more games. And so I don't feel jealous of that person. In fact, I bask in that person's glory. You even serve them do you do yeah, everything even, you can
0: to make them even better.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, defer to them, work hard to make them better, and then I feel like this sort of hmm. pride when they succeed. And and that's the kind of feeling that's really awesome. And it's something that I would like to see as put more hmm. if if we can get that. Somehow like that's why like y- you know the the sort of Ronald Reagan America's awesome like w- we're this great country. Like it's easy to mock it sometimes, but that helps people because mm-hmm. if i'm working at a you know a, a corner store or whatever and i take care of my family at least i can feel like i'm helping america mm-hmm. you know i'm a person here i'm raising my family i'm helping this country and when and when the rich people in this country do well i'm a part of that and instead mm-hmm. of being bitter and envious i can feel good about that mm-hmm. if you take that away and you say saying america's a great country is somehow chauvinistic then what do i have to feel pride in or, or i'm just going to feel envy about those who have more than i do you know what i mean like yeah. Yeah, I, yeah i don't know
0: it reminds me of i think it's the steinbeck quote that i've been thinking about lately i think it's Steinbeck about the american americans are temporarily embarrassed millionaires right we're all we're, we're fine with the millionaires because any day i'll be a millionaire but yeah there's something else going on it's that I don't need to be envious about the person who's making billions and billions of dollars more than me because I I have some sort of humility about the amount of value that they're adding to the society as long as the person who's making – the very successful people aren't basking in their own success for their own sake. So it has to be a dynamic where the people who excel – are are you know appreciative of of those who are under them and those who are under them? It has to be the whole the whole community has to be involved. Yeah, in
1: absolutely, that. absolutely, and that's that's the problem when you get like some you know like. The the stereotypical tech elite who's sort of snobbish and like, oh, like, hoi polloi, they don't understand this. And like, they have these weird morals. And I'm pro, I was pro gay marriage in 1982 because I'm so progressive. And like, you know, that's where you get that alienation because Mm. now not only are you making a billion and a half dollars, something I can't even comprehend, but you're also condescending to me and judging me for for hunting and for going to church, you know, like, and for, I think of this with immigration as well. So like, people who are in these more traditional communities that have been relatively stable demographically, they don't want them to change. And like, we can argue about whether that's good or bad. But I think it's perfectly natural. And it's probably something that we should be a little bit sympathetic to. And you can see how you do have now I know, People say this is a dog whistle, but there is really a cosmopolitan elite. Like, I don't think that that's I'm not that's not disparaging. It's just a description. There's a group of people who travel everywhere and they feel at home in Italy and the United States in their third house in France or whatever it is. Right. And so, yeah, they don't have the same kind of ties to their their local community that other people have and they have different values. And I think it's easy to see why you would get pissed off about that. If you lived in rural Michigan, and why when somebody came along, however boorish Trump is, who said, F those people, Mm -hmm. like, I love you, I'm here for you, I'm doing this for you, you can see why people flock to that and they found it like, you know, they, I think they thought he was kind of crude, but here's a guy who's fighting for me and who's, who's sticking his finger in the eye of these elites who are condescending to me all the time. And he likes fast food and he likes these tacky TV programs. And so do I, you know?
0: Yeah. yeah. The problem is convincing the conservatives to appreciate the liberals. I've been working on trying to oh, get the that, liberals to... Is that right? I mean, I'm, I'm the next step of the game is to is to, so? is to prove because people, I, I think that they accept me as a liberal, but they, they they're really harsh on my my liberal guests, my audience, coming down pretty hard and say that, that liberals right? liberalism always leads to disaster. It's inherently wrong. I'm like you need it you love your iPhone, you love the video games that you play, you love all these <laughs> innovations, you, right. you want it, but you want it within a certain realm of, of radioactivity. You don't want it cancerous, you want it, you know, stimulating, you know. So.
1: Yeah, uh, no, that's interesting, yeah. I, you know, I, I I find this is, uh, I did this uh, this thread about leaving, leaving the left, I yeah. guess. Yeah, yeah, and like, you know, I picked up like, I don't know, 700, 800 followers from it, and then what I noticed is, when I criticized Donald Trump's response to yeah. the coronavirus, I lost like a hundred followers yeah. in like ten minutes. I was like, "Holy shit, what happened?"
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: well, I I wanted to
0: know why you thought that was so atrocious because that's going to be a trigger. People, I know my commenters are like, hey, "I
1: criticize." Oh yeah, Donald that's Trump. yeah, good. Okay, so I I mean, f- first of all, I I have always maintained that Trump was a boorish person. And I think that's pretty clear. I mean, he's a person who mocked somebody with a disability. Uh, he's clearly ignorant of the world. And but, no, I think he has some qualities that are good when you're in a culture war. Hmm. He's he, he doesn't apologize. He He's mer- mercilessly tribal. He stuck up for Brett Kavanaugh when a lot of people would have caved. And I can understand why people like that. However, when you get to a crisis in which you have to unify people, mm. and in which you have to accept responsibility for your own failures, he is catastrophically ill suited. Okay. And so, I mean, for one thing, if you look at like, I, I was saying like, dude, look like four weeks ago, this w- it was clear that this was going to be a major catastrophe for the United States. And I was saying that not because I'm a genius, But because I was reading what the experts were saying. And Trump, up until a week ago, was essentially maintaining that this would just be some kind of blip and it was basically another flu. And I have a lot of conservative relatives who picked Mm -hmm. up that message and who were saying that. And I had some people who were pretty nasty to me on Twitter saying, basically, you're an idiot. This is nothing. Like, you know, like whatever. And I think they were doing that because they were following the lead of conservative media and Donald Trump. And now it's clear that Trump recognizes the severity of the problem and people around him have said, you can't do that anymore. This is going to get worse and people are going to be more and more mm-hmm. disconcerted by your response. But I think it's too late. I mean, he, he bun- bungled the thing about as badly as you can bungle it. And when you watch his you know, I've tried to watch all of his press conferences about it. The thing that really stands out to me is that there is absolutely zero empathy coming. Like he's incapable of empathizing with people. So you watch even Justin Trudeau, whom I mostly dislike, actually severely dislike. Mm-hmm. At least he's like, you know, you're worried. I understand that things are disconcerting for people right now. Like, it's going to get worse. We have to be prepared for this, but X, Y, and Z. At least you get this sense of community and, like, yes, I am afraid. I am worried. You know, Mm -hmm. Trump just cannot do that because he does not have that personality characteristic. And I mean, can you imagine if like Obama were president right now? he'd be knocking these speeches out of the park just giving these very comforting mm. and i know you know like the the sort of libertarians I, I like charles w cook a lot for example and i know he'd say well that's you know, the president's just one person like big deal whatever you shouldn't worship the president yes but the president has a huge microphone and yeah. what the president says really can make you feel better or it can make you feel a lot worse. It can make you prepare or it can make you be like, this is just a hoax. Mm. And so, yeah, I've just been disgusted by it. And I want to be clear, like, I don't want to vote for a Democrat. I really don't. I don't like, I watched the debate, the Biden-Sanders debate and I was kind of like, OK, I'm going to vote for Biden because Trump has so alienated me. Then I watched that debate and I was just like, no, <laughs> no, please stop. <laughs> you know, like hmm. Just this this like Biden is basically like we're not going to deport anybody unless they commit a felony, which is essentially open borders. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can say it's not. But if you're not going to deport anybody. Uh, so I, I'm between. Uh, if I to to get highfalutin, I'm between Scylla and Charybdis, or a rock and a hard place, right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I I don't. I like the GOP better, but I find Trump so nauseatingly mm. uh, incompetent and boorish that he alienates me so much that I don't want to reward him. Do you not? You you must just be pretty good about not saying your views. <laughs> I don't see I don't, my views.
0: I, yeah, I, I I allowed myself to criticize Sanders because he went through Seattle and I went to the rally in Tacoma. And the speakers that came on before him were like, we're going to start a socialist revolution yeah, and God, take down yeah. capitalist oppression. Yeah, and the, the problem with our country isn't disparity, it's greed. And then all the well-fed people behind her like start smacking like and we're going (laughs) to take away the money from the billionaires like this isn't how economy works
1: yeah i know so i had to go after sanders yeah yeah i I saw this it's uh, in the debate another thing was like the way that sanders was treating pharmaceutical companies just like utterly berating them and i'm Mm. like dude like Look, we can criticize some of their practices, but pharmaceutical companies are going to save our country. I mean Mm -hmm. we want (laughs) – profit is a good thing. It's not – I I think in Bernie Sanders' worldview, all profit is somehow robbery from somebody. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's just like if you're making profit, it's because you're stealing it from another human. And, and yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't
0: like that. You know what? That, that makes sense because uh, I mean the, the problem that I'm sorry, I, Try to suspend my criticism of him because I don't want to be uh, agree or disagree. But like, he's made so much money off of these poor people that are giving him five dollars, twenty seven dollars. You know, no yes. refunds for that. And even yep. to this day, he still has these donation centers up. And the math is going to work out that he's losing. So where's all this money going, right? And then he's constantly asking yeah. for money. So he's in a begging position. And then he's going to steal from the rich. But he's stealing from the poor in order to afford to steal from the rich. It's just there's something that doesn't add up.
1: Well, I think Michael Bloomberg about the only thing that he said that was good in any of the debates is basically like Bernie Sanders is the socialist who owns three homes or whatever. You know, and it's like, yeah, it's true. And like profit, profit is good. Yeah. Right. Profit. Is the the sort of like fuel for the engine of innovation, et cetera, et cetera. And I I think it's just a problem that some people don't understand how markets work, and they yeah. think inevitably that if you're making money, somehow you're a bad person. or yeah. Like Walmart is bad, or the pharmaceuticals yeah. are bad, or the crook billionaires or and, whatever.
0: And my, my argument is is that it starts out as an economic disparity argument, right? It starts out as a platform where the billionaires have and the poor people don't. And then it eventually gets translated into those people are more beautiful or more well spoken, or or more intelligent than me. And that wrongs me like the people that have anything more than me on any vector. That's how the narrative eventually works out across the <sighs> spectrum of intelligence. Because people can't well, calculate
1: that, or di- disimpersonalize that, Well, that's an intro. That. <laughs> That's an interesting thought of just like the kind of, it, it's a, pro, it promotes a kind of bitter envy that yeah. I think we should attempt to uh, subdue, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Although to be charitable to a Sanders supporter, they might say, well, yeah, th- it does sometimes do that, but sometimes envy is good. Yeah, Sometimes you actually need it because sometimes people are taking too much and yeah. so, if you were to argue about French before the, the, the France before the French Revolution, like clearly there there was a, a group of people who were absorbing a yeah. lot of the wealth of the country, and people should have been bitter about it. I mean, they probably shouldn't have had the revolution the way they did. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. so so, so just, just just to be fair to that, i I agree with you. i I, I don't like the kind of, uh, and I don't i don't, I, don't, I find the people who support. I, I almost find the people who are on the platform with Sanders who gives the give those talks more unsavory than Sanders, yeah. because I don't I am more alarmed by wokeism than mm. I am by the 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 class stuff. So like Linda Sarsour bothers me more, mm. right? That kind of like racial resentment mm-hmm. shit, where you you, you know because. You we you can't do anything about that. Like economic stuff, sometimes there's there's actually like a, a non-zero sum solution. Mm-hmm. You know, we can you know everybody wins a little bit. When you start breaking into these groups of races and competing for stuff, then it's all non-zero sum.
0: No, it, it 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 doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't add up to anything but just shouting and tearing each other apart. That's all. Yes.
1: it leads to. It sounds as though we're ending on such a positive note. Yeah, aren't we?
0: Aren't we uplifting? <laughs> was, was there something? Was there something glorious for you to
1: tap off into the sunset? Yeah, I want. Let me see. Is there anything optimistic I can say? Okay, I, so you know corona. what? I will say this. I will say this. I find hope in the amount of humorous memes that people have been sharing that are absolutely delightful to other people, and I think about. Can you imagine quarant- whatever we may think of Twitter now? Can you imagine quarantining without this Skype, the ability to talk? Yeah. Did you see the one with the guy who was eating the cars with the sock? Yeah, I saw that one. That yeah. thing was fucking genius, man people yeah. need to keep making those so yeah. that's what that's what gives me hope and that's, and that's what optimistic.
0: yeah ultimately that's what i was thinking I'm trying to imagine a world without a religion that doesn't fall into a worse religion i was thinking you know the memes might just
1: unite us the memes might save us cat yeah. memes you yeah know, like yeah there are some pretty glorious ones agreed <laughs> <laughs> all right well i'm about right, ready well. to take off all right thanks I, so much I appreciate man. it a lot Thank yeah you. have a good evening Yeah, you do. thanks yeah
0: Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce, or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.